Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're dipping into the latest report in the Shifting Asia series, published by UBS Global Wealth Management. The edition in the frame this week is titled The Global Engine of New Mobility and explores how Asia is looking to grab pole position in the race for electric vehicle supremacy. China is upping the ante and funneling vast amounts of investment into its EV industry, becoming a hotbed for innovation from batteries to autonomous driving software. Japan and Korea too have entered the fray and are pledging policy support and investment to become EV powerhouses. So what do the investment opportunities across the space look like? Well, we have with us today two of the co-authors of the Shifting Asia report. Let's start with Carl Beresford, analyst in the UBS Wealth Management CIO. Carl, in terms of the Shifting Asia pieces, really, really fascinating piece, this one on, well, the global engine of new mobilities, the, the subhead. But just remind us what the Shifting Asia pieces are. Well, remind us what they are. What, what do they do? What kind of insights do they help you and your colleagues provide? Okay, generally we look at, they are a little bit similar to our long-term investment theme series and that they have a longer-term kind of investment horizon. So I think the long-term investment theme series is, they look out to 30 years. For the shifting Asia, our time frame's a bit shorter. It's we, we look at trends that we think investors should be focused on over a, over a decade, over a 10 to 15 year outlook. So we typically focus on structural trends that are a very early phase of growth. And sort of we, we basically lay out how we think these trend, these investment trends are going to fan out over a period of a decade or so. So a lot of the themes are policy driven, are, will, are policy driven, and it gives us a degree of of confidence that the you know that it will actually unfold over this time frame. So we have a certain degree of sort of I would say um, good visibility over you know over a short to medium term period. So we're focused on structural shifts uh, in industry trends that I mean investors should be paying attention to because there are the clearly opportunities to invest in an industry or, or just a sector trend that is at a very early stage of development. Carl Beresford. Let's hear next from Hartmut Issel in Singapore. Hartmut heads up the Asia team for equities in particular. Hartmut Issel, good to welcome you back to the programme. Just tell us a bit more about what the piece tells us about, you know, the state of the EV industry then, kind of across Asia. Obviously, it's led by, by China. It's the world's largest automaker in any case. Um, but we expect, what, continued growth right through to 2030. Uh, the, the, the pace of, of development, the scale of what we're seeing, it's pretty striking in terms of the, the data that's in this piece, I'm certainly, and, and you already hit the right spot. Uh, it, it is really China for now that pulls it. Right? And later on in a decade, we're also going to start to see other markets uh, with, with large populations, in particular uh, India and, and also Indonesia. But it's yeah, a bit uh, back-end loaded in that sense. But uh, just interesting numbers that we have um, calculated in our view. Uh, so Asia combined probably gives us the highest average compound annual rates of, of growth in terms of volumes. So we are talking 36% here until the end of this decade. By that time, we expect to reach about 20 million uh, units. Uh, what that means is we compare that with, for example, the US, where we anticipate 
about 17 percent uh, growth rate over the same uh, time frame and then to arrive at just over six million and uh, maybe also for context Europe we expect uh, 22.6 percent growth rate and ending up at 10.3 million so in any case uh, Asia overall is going to be more than double the other uh, regions in terms of units. And it's interesting, I know there's a there's a, a section of the piece which is entitled What's Under the Hood? And it's important to stress, isn't it, Hartmut, that indeed it's not just about electric vehicles or vehicle manufacturers. Indeed, there's all of that underlying technology, extraordinary growth ahead as well in battery parts, certain raw materials. And again, we see Asia in the vanguard here. That is correct, uh, especially when the pure electric components are, are, uh, are concerned and especially batteries. What you will find is that the five largest battery makers uh, on the planet are actually Asian companies. And that means Asia has uh, an edge, especially China also has an edge. And one of the largest ones here, uh, contemporary Amperex uh, cattle, as it's uh, also known as, they also have a strong or, or two strong actually advantages. Um, one is the accessibility of the raw materials and the other one is uh, labor costs. So uh, whereas other ones, uh, we have also very, very big ones in Japan, very big ones in Korea as well. Right? These are super high quality producers working with a lot of global OEMs in their own regions in the US, in uh, Europe, for example, the Chinese at this point, it's coming, but less so. So, yeah, you have a whole variety of, of uh, cutting-edge uh, battery producers. Let me ask you a bit about supply chain, because there's some interesting information, of course, in the, in the piece about how Asia supply chain supplies, obviously, the, the, the local region, but indeed the whole world with those battery parts, with raw materials. But there are challenges ahead as well, aren't there, Hartman? Can you talk to us a bit about the big picture when it comes to the supply chain? The biggest challenge actually for, for Asian companies in particular is probably the semiconductor side, arguably. This is really, you know, unlike batteries where, where really Asian companies have uh, have an edge, they're sort of almost the opposite end of the spectrum. So um, semiconductors, you know, we have companies here and there, especially also in, in Japan, uh, partially Taiwan that are specialized uh, in these. But yeah, sort of leading edge is probably more found in, uh, in the US and, and Europe at this point. So that is certainly something where especially China, as we know, uh, would like to catch up. And even if there are some obstacles ahead, humps in the road, if you want a sort of uh, automotive uh, metaphor, nevertheless, this is definitely clearly an area with huge upside potential. So it's always interesting, I think, Hartman, and we'll, we'll talk again a little bit to Carl later about this as well. But then for the investor who's really engaged by this, who finds the conclusion, some of the data that you've mentioned really really striking. What, 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 how does a, a canny investor go about positioning then to, to try and take advantage of some of these exciting themes? Because it is so exciting, you also attract naturally a lot of competition. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily compare it with 100 years ago, but it is really, if we look at um, China, right, the, the roughly the estimates that we have is about 400 car makers there alone. And just new ones, so the, the ones that don't have any legacy, um, probably also around 40 or so. Yeah, arguably not all of them are, are going to make it in the end, right? But the ones that are making it, um, they'll, they'll strike it rich. And uh, since it's very difficult to really pinpoint, um, you know, who exactly, we recommend a mix, uh, diversified a bit. I mean, because we see both on the global side, the global OEMs, as well as the Chinese legacy OEMs, right? I think this year made it very clear they are getting their act together, um, both camps, and um, therefore we would include them in the mix. 
And yes, probably a sprinkle of these, as we call them, NEVs or new electric vehicle producers, the scrappy startups. The issue with them can sometimes be that the valuations at times go really, really high to an extent that it's difficult to justify. But if one keeps a keen eye on this, um, certainly, uh, um, you know, as a, as a, as a um, complement to the portfolio uh, can also be a, a, a component. And then last but not least, certainly the supply chain, when you mentioned batteries, there's other ones like, like the, the, the high voltage cabling, the, 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 the um, transforming of the currents. Um, also here we have uh, across the, especially North Asia, a very strong suppliers that in, in, the, in the chains. So uh, probably a mix of those will be uh, the winning formulas. It's, it's virtually impossible to pinpoint just one company that can win it all. A final thought, perhaps, Hartmut, maybe on the hydrogen side of fuel cells. Is that something I know of an area of specialism for you, isn't it? As we know, technology for for passenger cars, there's actually an increasing number of, of global companies that are sort of surrendering, and it's okay for, you know, we we just go for battery, nothing else. Uh, on the truck side, it's it's debated, but uh, truck side looks looks more hopeful. But interestingly, and we have very strong, especially in Toyota and and, and Hyundai Group, um, very strong. Uh, um, technology champions also on on this and they have deep pockets of course to to uh, keep the r&d going and uh, we see them you know some of the uh, global oems actually uh, teaming up with with these uh, big a- asian uh, technology powerhouses because they they don't have the, the the pockets or the financial strength to to invest in all of these different technologies so so these tie-ups are also quite interesting to to watch in the industry because that that technology is still so far out in the future. I want to come back to you, Carl Beresford, now. We've heard from Hartmut already on this, but can you give us a sense from your vantage point of the scale of the opportunity here for Asia in the EV space? Clearly, when dealing with Asia and with China in particular, it's all about scale. So the China auto market is, is the world's large. It's actually larger than Japan and the U.S auto markets combined. So we're talking about the traditional auto market. So it already has, we're talking about electrification as a global trend driven by, you know, environmental concerns or, or the need to reduce emissions. As long as the government support these, the opportunity in China is obviously huge. Now, China also happens to be the world's, again, it's a scale issue, the largest CO2 emitter, and the government's actually come out and said we want to be carbon neutral by 2060. So I suppose the drive to electrify has has already got government, serious government backing. So we know we have subsidies for EVs in, in China. They're not as generous as the European ones, and they are being phased out because we're we're starting to approach, you know, parity. I see parity in China quite fast. Within a couple, two or three years, we expect to be at parity. So we don't actually need such hefty subsidies. But the opportunities is very clear if you have Beijing backing a you know CO2 neutrality drive. You have the world's biggest auto market that's sort of on the cusp of of starting this electrification drive. We're at the very early phase. I mean, we've given, we've talked about the 20% of new cars being EV by 2025 and 50 by 2030. But when you look at the exponential growth, I mean, we talk about 1 million car EVs today to 5 million by, you know, by 2025. That's, That's fivefold growth 
So, I mean, we're at very early stages of this this cycle. So, I mean, I think you just look at those those the facts. Biggest auto market in the world, government behind the ele- the electrification drive, and then you don't need to be a bright investor to see the opportunity there. And then I guess that the other side that's quite exciting is that you already have a very big part of the supply of that supply chain for the traditional auto industry already already in Asia. Most of it is in China. Um, and, uh, you know, for the, for the software side, well, when I say the software, the the hardware required for, um, for ADAS and for, um, connectivity and smart car systems, we, we have a lot of the, the, the camera sensor, semicon, um, supply chain. It's all, all in Asia too. You see that the supply chain is largely Asia based. It also supplies the global auto auto industry. So you also have another, it's not just about looking at downstream EV OEMs, but also looking about looking at the, the entire supply chain and where the opportunities are there. In some cases, there actually could be more attractive opportunities investing in segments of the EV supply chain than in the actual downstream OEMs themselves. Carl, what do the investment opportunities in this space look like? If you consider, firstly, that it take something like the battery. The battery can be 60% of the cost of EV car production. And, you know, you have the five, the world's five leading battery makers are actually Asian. And they supply the global auto industry. So that's one example where you basically have this a monopoly. You have... You know, some of these battery makers, their market share, global market share is much higher than the market share of any Asian car maker. So I think one example was Toyota's 15%. I mean, it's the best-selling brand globally. It's got a 15% market share. But you, you look at one of the Asian top five Asian battery makers and they could have a market share of double that. So there are opportunities, very exciting opportunities in the value chain, simply because you have players or manufacturers that have much greater market dominance than the actual OEMs, the EV OEMs themselves, where you have a much more fragmented industry, you have much lower barriers to to entry. I mean, EVs, I think it's something we mentioned in the, in the are not difficult to, I mean, they're quite simple compared to an ICE. I mean, in the future, as you have more sophisticated software and greater levels of automation, they will become more complex, but that complexity will be on, on, the, on the software side. At the moment, it's one of the reasons why, you know, we, it is a concern when you, you need to pick a winner because there will be a lot of consolidation in, in the downstream market, particularly in Asia. We have a proliferation of, of startups in China. I mean, that they, they, we've already seen some consolidation over the last 10 years, but we still have, I think, over 100 new startups, uh, EV startups in China. So that is a concern, a very, very fierce industry competition, uh, low barriers to entry. So it's one of the reasons that you know, investors should definitely consider you know, going up the supply chain and looking at companies that are perhaps better positioned, bigger market share, greater bargaining power, and enjoying higher margins than, than EVs. I mean, as you probably know, most new EV startups in Asia are not 
yet profitable. They're probably two to three years away from profitability. So at the moment, they are burning cash, building brands and building market share. Whereas you go to you look at some of these supply chain giants like uh, companies like CATL or Samsung SDI, they've been in this industry for a long time and they have well-established brands and large global market share. I did just want to ask you one very brief thing, just finally, because there's a chapter which we haven't touched upon about um, autonomous driving and, and I guess that what that could do to be another huge disruptive uh, force. And it's something that's that's interesting here. Just briefly, I know it's a, we don't want to sort of open a whole a massive can of worms, but you know that's often cited as the sort of the next phase, if you like, in the, some, the evolution of some of the ideas we we've spoken about. Just a word or two on that uh, and what that opportunity or challenge looks like as you see it. Well, autonomous driving is will be a, a game changer. Firstly, when you have a fully autonomous vehicle, does it matter if you're the owner or whether you know it's part of a fleet and you're paying on a per mile usage basis? In Asia, there's a good reason not to be an owner because real estate's expensive. Uh, we have a lot of congestion, very expensive parking space. There's a shortage of parking space in most big cities so there's there's a strong incentive to use a you know an autonomous vehicle that's part of a fleet and it's also environmentally very friendly because it reduces congestion we all know that private car ownership the cars spends i think four percent of its useful life on the road and the other 96 percent of the time parked so it's not very environmentally friendly when we get to these shared usage models you know that I think particularly for China, I think that could be something that could take off. Now, the, the issue with getting investment exposure is we don't actually know who, you know, which we're not sure which are going to be the key players in these, you know, managing or robotaxi fleets or autonomous car fleets, whether it's going to be the software developer, whether it's going to be one of the internet giants that are the only ones that are actively investing in this space, actually at the moment in Asia. OEMs at this stage, I think they, they don't have much experience in fleet management or you know, pay per mile revenue models. And I think they also, I think that there is an issue with OEMs basically having the know-how to develop these robo fleet, fleet models. And at the moment, they're basically focused on supplying cars to companies to startups that plan to manage robocar fleets so the basic focus at the moment is on supplying autonomous vehicles to these new startups so i think it's a question mark how do you get investment who do you actually invest in at this stage so is it the software developer is it the internet giant like baidu that's investing in robo in robocar fleets or is it the OEM that's supplying them? But we're still at very early phase. I mean, we don't expect L4, L5 ADAS systems to become established until the end of the decade. So we're some time away, but it's certainly a trend that as an investor, we need to watch because it could really disrupt the OEM, uh, the traditional market, which is the, the private car owner, the consumer. And that's Carl Beresford bringing us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and find out more at monocle.com or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.